Well, hey there, it's Adam Shaw, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to this week's sermon podcast. In this week's podcast, we are starting into a brand new series of sermons at Melbourne Heights based on the book of Revelation. And I know that can be a little bit scary because let's just be honest here. There are a lot of crazy ideas about what the book of Revelation has to say. But here's the truth. We overcomplicate the book of Revelation. The reality is there's a simple message inside of this book that Jesus wants us to hear. So in today's sermon, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be trying to simplify Revelation. So let's get right into this week's sermon. So I've shared with you before that when I was a kid, I loved playing board games. Truth of the matter is, now that I'm an adult, I still like to play a good board game from time to time. And over my years serving as pastor of this church, I've even convinced you guys to play some of these games with me during my sermons. But we're not going to do that again this morning. Rather, this morning I have a confession to make for you. I loved board games when I was a kid, but there was one game that as a child I absolutely hated. It's the game sitting underneath this box. Now, I'll forewarn you, this game's not huge, so you're not going to be able to see it from everywhere in the sanctuary, but we're going to put pictures up on the screen behind me so that you can see what I'm talking about with this. But when I was a kid, there was one game I absolutely hated, and here it is. This, of course, is the game of Mousetrap. Now, how many of you remember the game Mousetrap? How many of you ever played the game of Mousetrap? How many of you ever won at the game of Mousetrap? Liars, you can't win at Mousetrap. It's impossible. And we're going to talk about why it's impossible in just a couple of minutes. Now, for those of you who don't remember Mousetrap, never played it, let me explain, because the concept of the game of Mousetrap is actually pretty simple. In the game of mousetrap, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take your little mouse and you're trying to move it around the board as best that you possibly can with, and collect the, as much cheese as you possibly can without getting your mouse trapped. But just because the concept of the game sounds simple, it doesn't mean that the game is easy. And it's not an easy game because the heart of the game of mousetrap, the actual heart, the actual mousetrap, is what's called a Rube Goldberg machine. And a Rube Goldberg machine is a machine that takes a simple task and makes it as complicated as it possibly can. So, in the game of mousetrap, the simple task of the game is to take the net and to catch the mouse. That's the simple task of the game, but you can't just drop the net on the mouse, right? That wouldn't be fun. Kids would lose interest in it in no time flat, and then they're back to annoying their parents. So you have to do other things to make it more interesting. So the fine folks over at Hasbro who created the game make it way more complicated. So in the game of Mousetrap, the simple task gets a whole lot easier. Instead of just dropping the net, there's a whole lot more that you have to undertake. Here we go. Instead of dropping the net, here's what you have to do. The first thing that you have to do is you have to pull back this stop sign that's over here. It's connected to a rubber band. When you release the rubber band, the rubber band is going to swing forward. It's going to knock the green boot. The green boot that it's attached to is then going to swing forward and kick over the yellow bucket that's right here. When the bucket falls, there's a marble that I have in my pocket so I wouldn't lose it. The marble is going to proceed to drop down this blue chute until it connects into the red slide around the bottom. 
once, once it hits the red slide, it's going to continue all the way around until it drops inside of another yellow bucket. All right? Everybody following along so far? Because this is where it gets really tricky. When the marble lands inside of the yellow bucket, the marble is supposed to be heavy enough to release this broom. This broom is held in place by a wrench on the back of it, okay? When it releases the broom, the broom swings forward, launches the marble into the next red slide. The red slide then sends it down into the bathtub. At this point, the marble is going to go down the drain. When the marble goes down the drain, it then lands on the diving board. The diving board then launches the green swimmer up and into the air, and if you're lucky, the green swimmer is going to land inside of this yellow pool. At that point, the weight of the swimmer is supposed to be enough to knock, to, to shift around the balance of this to release the net, and then, if you're really lucky, and only if you're really lucky, you might actually catch the mouse. Right? Everybody follow all of that? And said, it's complicated. All of that sounds pretty cool, and it's a whole lot of fun to watch when it works. And that's why I wanted the game so much when I was a kid, because it was just so much fun to watch all of this stuff happen when you were watching the cartoons. I wanted to pull the stop sign, to hit the shoe, to kick the bucket, to release the marble, to shoot it down the chute, to land, in, to land it inside of another bucket, to swing it up by the broom, to launch that marble up into the air, make it land inside of the red chute, send it down the, send it down the bathtub, down the drain, hit the diving board, launch the swimmer, plunge into the pool, drop the net, catch the mouse. But it never worked. It never worked. There was always something that went wrong with the mousetrap, and that's why I hated this game when I was a kid. You couldn't win because you could never catch somebody else's mouse. And if you don't believe me, let me show you. Get it set up here again, okay. All right. Marble's in the bucket. Pull the stop sign. See? It skipped all of it. Somehow managed to hit over here, and kept, but it didn't even catch the mouse. The mouse has got his nose sticking out from the bottom of it, so he's just going to sneak away. That's why I said you only get lucky to catch the actual mouse. The game never works. It never works the way that it's supposed to. There are dozens of things that can go wrong. Rubber band can break. Stop sign won't shoot. The marble can start falling and decide to go a completely different course than what's designed for it. Sometimes it doesn't make it into the bucket. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's heavy enough to launch it. There are dozens of things that can go wrong with this. It is just so complicated that there always seems to be something wrong. Where the truth of the matter is, if you want to catch a mouse, you know what you need to do with this game? Take a mouse, take a net, there, you're done. It really is that simple. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. Right? It really doesn't. But now that I've spent the first several minutes of this morning's sermon venting about one of my childhood frustrations and why I hate the game of mousetrap, you're probably wondering what in the world that has to do with anything else. Let's figure it out together, okay? When it comes to the game of mousetrap, it was nothing but one of my childhood frustrations because it was way more complicated than the game needed to be. Well, this morning we started into a series of sermons from the book of Revelation. And for a lot of us, the book of Revelation feels like the game of mousetrap did for me when I was a kid. 
the book of Revelation seems so complicated that we end up feeling frustrated whenever we read it. The book of Revelation seems so complicated that we end up feeling frustrated when we read it, so we give up on reading it altogether. But over the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to simplify the book of Revelation. We're going to try to simplify the book of Revelation. We're going to get rid of the boots and the buckets and the brooms and the bathtubs, and we're going to get back to what this book is really all about and try to catch that mouse at the end of it. And the only way that we can do that is to actually read some of the book of Revelation together. So I want to encourage you this morning to go ahead and grab your Bible, whether you've got a printed one like mine or an app on your phone or whatever you may have, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we'll start reading together in verse 9. But this is the point in the sermon where I usually take a few minutes to talk a little bit more about what's happening inside of this book, what's happening historically uh, when this book is written, or I spend some time talking about the person who may have written this book. But we're going to dig deeper into that over the next few weeks. This morning, all I want to do is I want to jump right into Revelation chapter 1, start reading with you in verse 9, just to hear what it says. So let's listen. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother, who shares with you in the hardship the kingdom and the endurance that we have in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of the Lord and my witness about Jesus. I was in a spirit-inspired trance on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet. It said, write down on a scroll whatever you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I turned to see who was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning on top of seven golden stands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw someone who looked like the Son of Man. He wore a robe that stretched down to his feet, and he had a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were as white as wool like snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine brass <coughs> and in, that has been purified in a furnace, and his voice sounded like a rushing water. He held seven stars in his right hand, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His appearance was like the sun shining with all of its power. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, but he put his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. But look, now I'm alive forever and always. I have the keys of death in the grave. So write down what you have seen, both the scene before you now and the things that are about to unfold after this. As for the mystery of the stars that you saw in my right hand of the seven gold lampstands, here's what they mean. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches of the seven lampstands are those seven churches. Okay, let's just be honest right here. There is a whole lot of stuff that's happening inside of these 12 verses of Scripture, right? There is a whole lot of stuff going on, and it can be a little bit overwhelming to read all of it and take it all in. I mean, let's just focus in from these verses of Scripture on the way that they describe Jesus to us, okay? In verse 13... In Revelation chapter 1, John tells us that he sees someone who looks like the Son of Man. 
And the Son of Man is the most common name that Jesus uses to refer to himself inside of the Gospels. So John tells us that he sees someone who looks like Jesus. Now, many scholars believe that the John who wrote the book of Revelation is the same John that was one of Jesus' first followers, part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. So that means that John followed Jesus around for three years. So when John says that he sees someone who looks like Jesus, he knows what he's talking about. He saw Jesus walking this earth, so he knows what Jesus looks like. But the person that John sees now looks different than the Jesus that he remembers. So John describes him to us in the section. He tells us that Jesus is wearing a robe that stretches all the way down to his feet. He tells us that Jesus has a gold sash that he's wearing across his chest. He tells us that Jesus has hair that's as white as snow and that his eyes look like a fiery flame. He tells us that Jesus' feet were like brass that had been refined by the fire and that he has a voice that sounds like the rushing water. Now, from that description, I don't know about you guys, but I can't help but think that Jesus must have looked like some combination of Gandalf the White from the Lord of the Ring movies and Raiden from the Mortal Kombat games, but that's probably just me, and that's not at all the point of anything we're talking about this morning. The point is that there is a whole lot going on in this passage of Scripture just in the way that John describes Jesus to us. And it's easy to get distracted by all of these details and to start wondering what all of these different signs and symbols mean. And here's the truth. All of these different signs, all of these different symbols that we're reading, they do have a meaning. They have a meaning, and they have a meaning because John is writing to us in symbolic language. And every symbol that John uses in the book of Revelation would have meant something to the very first people that John was writing to. That's what symbols are used for, right? Symbols are used to convey a deeper or more complex meaning in a simplified way. Let me show you an example of what I mean. Go ahead and put it up on the screen. This, of course, is the American flag, right? And the American flag is used to symbolize, it's used to represent our country. And just by looking at it, there's things that we can learn about our country from it. The 13 stripes on the flag represent the 13 original colonies that first formed the United States of America. The 50 stars inside of the field of blue, they represent the 50 states that have made up the United States of America since 1959. The color red on the flag represents hardiness and valor. The color white on the flag represents purity and innocence. And the color blue represents vigilance and perseverance and justice. And you may not have known what every single one of those things symbolize on the flag, but just by looking at the flag, you know what it symbolizes. You know what it represents. You know that it represents the United States of America. So just by flashing this picture up on the screen, you knew something about what is symbolized by this image. Well, the exact same thing would have been true for the very first people to read the book of Revelation. John uses symbols that they would have recognized, symbols that they would have understood, so, uh, and, and think a little bit more about this, okay? If I were living in the first century and I showed them a picture like the one we just had up on the screen of the American flag, would anybody in there have had any idea what that represented? Of course not. We're talking about the first century, 1,600 plus years before the United States of America came into existence at all. It would have meant nothing. Well, here we are. We're separated from the original story of Revelation, the first people who heard it by 1,900 years. 
So of course some of these symbols are a little bit mysterious to us. Symbols change. Symbols become different. We lose meaning over the course of time. But when John describes Jesus to us, everybody would have understood these first symbols. Unfortunately for us, there are scholars who help explain all of this to us. Like this. When John describes Jesus as wearing a robe that stretched all the way down to his feet, John's audience would have known that that represented someone who was a priest. And they would have known that this represented someone who was a priest because they had spent portions of their life going into the temple and seeing priests that wore robes that went all the way down to their feet. And when John tells us that Jesus has a gold sash across his chest, his first audience would have known that that represented royalty because they would have seen royal people wearing golden sashes across their chest. When John mentions to us that Jesus had hair that was white as snow, well, it represents the same thing that the white stripes in the American flag represent. It represents purity, and it also represents wisdom. When John talks about Jesus' feet being like bronze, he's not talking about the color of his feet. He's talking about bronze as a symbol of strength and power, something that weapons were made out of in this time. But none of that is actually the point that John is trying to make by telling us about these symbols. The symbols aren't the point that John is making in the story. You see, all of these symbols are like the boot and the bucket and the broom and the bathtub inside of the game of mousetrap. They're part of the game, just like all of these symbols are part of John's vision from God, but they're not the point of John's vision. The the boot and the bucket and the broom and the bathtub, they're not the point of mousetrap. The point of mousetrap is to catch a mouse. All of these symbols aren't the point of John's vision. John's got something else he's trying to tell us. John wants us to catch that mouse. But all of these symbols make this message way more complicated than it needs to be. So let's simplify what John is telling us in Revelation chapter 1. Let's go back and look at it a couple of verses at a time and see what John is telling us. And I'm going to start back in Revelation 1, verse 9. Okay, this is what John writes. He says, I, John, your brother, who shares with you in hardship, kingdom, and endurance that we have in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and my witness about Jesus. Okay, here's what John's saying. John's saying, I'm a Christian like you guys are, and because I was out telling people about Jesus, it got me exiled. I'm now living on an island. So that's where everything starts inside of this passage. Let's move on to verses 10 and 11. In 10 and 11, John tells us, I was in a spirit-inspired trance. This is, he's receiving a vision from God on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet. And it said, write down on a scroll whatever you see and send it to the seven different churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay, so this is where John's revelation begins. But I want you to notice that John doesn't just receive this vision for the sake of receiving a vision, right? John is told that there is a purpose for the vision he is receiving. And the purpose for this vision is he is supposed to write it down so that he can tell these seven churches about what he's just seen. So right now we know that John is living in exile because he was telling people about Jesus. And while he was there in exile, he receives this revelation from Jesus. And he's supposed to share with others, with other followers of Jesus, what he's seen. Let's keep going in verses 12 and 13, and we're going to find another important detail. John writes, I turned to see who was speaking to me, 
And when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning on top of seven gold stands. In the middle of the lamp stands, I saw someone who looked like the Son of Man. In these two verses, John tells us who gave him this revelation. Jesus is the one who gives John this revelation. So all of these verses, all of the details that are about to follow, all of the information that we've already heard this morning has one really simple point. Jesus has a message for his followers. The book of Revelation is Jesus' message for his followers. That's it. That's it. This whole complicated book and everything that people have tried to turn this into, it's not that complicated. At its heart... The whole book of Revelation is Jesus' message for his followers. We've just been trying to overcomplicate this for our entire lives. But this book is simply a message that Jesus wants his followers to hear. And if you keep reading the next couple of chapters, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, like we were supposed to do in our church-wide reading this week, you understand why Jesus needs to send a message to his church, Right? He needs to send a message for all of his followers to hear because all of these churches, these seven churches that he mentions, every single one of them are struggling to some extent. Every one of these churches is struggling. They're going through tough times. But it's not just these seven churches that he specifically mentions that are struggling and going through hard times. Remember what we talked about with the American flag up on the screen. John uses a lot of symbols in the book of Revelation, and the number seven is a really important symbol. You may want to make note of this because you're going to run into the number seven multiple times inside of the book of Revelation. But the number seven symbolizes wholeness or completion. Think the seven days of creation, right? All of creation was done inside of seven days. So by telling John to give this message to these seven churches, what Jesus is really telling John is that he has a message for the whole church, the complete church. Every church. Not just the church that was around that John was writing to, but every church and everyone who would follow Jesus from the day of this message, the time it was first revealed, to right now. The entire church. Past, present, and future. Jesus has a message that he wants the entire church to hear. Jesus has a message that he wants everyone who follows him to hear. And he has a message he wants all of us to hear because Jesus knows that every single one of us, we're going to struggle in our faith sometimes. Jesus knows that we're all going to struggle sometimes. So he has a message he wants all of us to hear. Now I want you to stop and think about what that means for just a second. The book of Revelation is a message that Jesus has wanted every one of his followers to hear. This is a message that Jesus has wanted every single one of his followers to hear for almost 2,000 years. So this means that this is a message that Jesus wanted his very first followers to hear about 2,000 years ago during the height of the Roman Empire. And that means that this is a message that Jesus wanted his followers to hear 600 years ago uh, when the Protestant Reformation was just getting started. This means that inside of the book of Revelation, Jesus has a message that he wanted his followers to hear 60 years ago 
when Melbourne Heights was being planted right here in Louisville. And that means that Jesus has a message that he wants you to hear, too. And this message is a message that every one of Jesus' followers, every one of us, needs to hear. This is a message that followers of Jesus needed to hear 2,000 years ago. This is a message that followers of Jesus needed to hear 600 years ago and 60 years ago. This is a message that you and I, we need to hear today. And we need to hear it today because this message from the book of Revelation is a promise for the future, not a prediction about the future. The book of Revelation is a promise for our future, not a prediction about our future. Jesus has words that he wants us to know. He wants us to know what the future holds, but he's not telling us exactly how that future is going to unfold. Now next Sunday, we're going to start digging deeper into this promise that Jesus makes for the future for all of us. And we're going to listen together to something that Jesus has wanted every single one of his followers for thousands of years to know. So let's just say it's important. If Jesus has wanted the millions, the billions of Christians who have followed him over the ages to hear this message, it's pretty important. So come back next week as we start digging deeper into this message and hearing this promise that Jesus makes to us all for our future. But right now, I just want to pray for you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in this place this morning and to start thinking about what the book of Revelation really is, God. And you know that we have tried to overcomplicate it and make it into something far more than it really needs to be, God. Because this book at its heart is a message that you, that your son, want all of us to hear. For thousands of years, you have wanted everyone who has followed you to hear these words. Because in this, you promise us, you make us promises for our future. You don't tell us about what's going to happen in the future, but you make us a promise for what the future holds for us all. So God, allow us to hear these words, to hear the promises that you make to us, to find comfort in them, to find hope in them, to know that no matter how bad things may be in our lives, that you were still a God who is holy, a God who is worthy of being worshipped, a God who loves and cares for every one of us. God, let us not be overwhelmed by a book that can feel complicated. God, let us remember the simple message. You were a God who wants us to hear from you. And you have wanted us to hear from you for thousands of years, God. So open our ears. Let us listen. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Well, hey there, it's Adam again, and thank you for listening to this week's sermon podcast. I hope that it's helped you start to understand the book of Revelation just a little bit better and to see that at its heart, the book of Revelation is just a message that Jesus has that he wants his followers to hear. Now, next week, we're going to start digging deeper into what that message is, and I want to encourage you to do something a little bit different this week. This week, I want to invite you to join with my church, Melbourne Heights Baptist Church, as we are reading through the book of Revelation together. This 
week we're going to be reading Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 9. And I want to give you a few things to be looking for to help you think about what the message is Jesus wants his followers to hear. The first thing I want you to be looking for is who is seated on the throne in Revelation chapter 4. When you realize who the one is that's seated on the throne, you're going to figure out who's in charge of everything else that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. Then I also want you to be looking out for what's going on with the people who are following God in these chapters. In Revelation chapter 4, the people who are following God are represented by the 24 elders. And in Revelation chapter 7, we're represented by the 144,000 and a multitude so large that it cannot be counted. Pay attention to these groups. Where are they at? What's happening? What is God doing for them? The third thing I want you to be paying attention to is what's happening to people who aren't following God. And I'll give you a spoiler alert. It's bad stuff. This is where some of those most famous signs and symbols in the book of Revelation come into play, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But if you'll do those three things, keep an eye out for who's on the throne, what's happening to people who are following God, and what's happening to people who aren't, you're going to start to see, start to hear the message that Jesus has for his followers. We're going to talk more about that in next week's sermon, so I invite you to come back and join us next Tuesday when that episode drops. As always, if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do that so that the next episode is sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And feel free to leave us a review. Those reviews can mean a lot and they can help spread the word about this podcast to others. I hope that you guys have a great week this week. I am praying for you and I look forward to seeing you back here next Tuesday for another sermon podcast.